Hi everyone, I hope you're well and enjoying what we have of this British summer. We've had some nice days and we've had a lot of rain. My flowers are very happy anyway. But anyway, today I'm joined by a lovely friend of mine. He's a brilliant, brilliant award-winning novelist for thrillers such as The Day of the Jackal and The Odessa File. Amazing. And his name is Frederick Forsyth. Oh, this is so lovely, Freddie. It's so long since I've seen you. How well, are there you? you? Are. Well, we're fine. I'm fine, and uh, you know, I can see you're fine. And I am. I'm just thinking, we we are veterans. We are survivors. We go back a long way. We do. We do. Before we start our chat, have you got your have you got your cuppa? I've got my cuppa here, right here. What are you drinking? Uh, coffee. Mm. Oh, you're a cover. Oh, look at those robins. Freddie is drinking from the most beautiful mug with robins. Is that relevant to something? No, no, just a, I don't know. Sandy, my wife, bought it for me. And uh, one of my favourites, got robins all around it. And I like robins. Well, we've got robins in the garden, you see. Oh, yeah. And I don't the, know anyone who doesn't. Everyone loves robins, don't they? The They're point. so gorgeous. It's the, it's the favourite British bird. And do you think the same ones come back every year to your garden? Well, this is what I was just saying. I believe, because I, I can't know, but it's, uh, the, it's the same hole in the same tree. Mm-hmm. Get a, a crop of robins, a pair of robins, and then followed by four or five fledglings Aww. coming out when they're learning to fly. And then their, their mother feeds them um, a constant supply of insects and things. And then finally they're ready to go and they go. Then nothing happens for about four, five, six, seven months, and then yeah. the, the next time, I think it's the same mum comes back. Um, maybe with a new hubby, maybe the same hubby. I don't know. <laughs> we, we've never been introduced, so um, <laughs> they duly hold have another nest, another brood, um, more fledglings, and then they fly Aww. again. So this is the third year running. Well, it it would make sense because if it's a good tree and she likes it there, it would make sen- sense that they and they're actually very. For, we've got a robin in our garden in Sussex, and, she, and and I think it's the same one that comes every day. And and hit it, I don't know whether it's a boy or a girl, is really friendly and gets quite oh, close. Yep, they're, they're very bold. Yeah. Once they trust go- you, um, they come almost to, the, to your forefinger. Anyway, it's so lovely to talk to you. Now, I think congratulations are in order because you just celebrated 50 years since the publishing of Day of the Jackal. That's amazing. It caught me by surprise. The publishers told me. I didn't know. I'd forgotten. But apparently it was launched on the 22nd of July, uh, 1971. So 50 years. Extra well, congratulations! Thank you. Did you did you have a, a day of the jackal party? <laughs> there, yeah, this yes, there was. Uh, there was a, there was a lunch, um, and a very few old veterans who were around at that time, fifty years ago, yeah, were, were present. So it was a meeting of the clans. Amazing. And my lovely agent of those days, now in her, I think late eighties. To my 83, uh, so there aren't many of us left. Well, you look bloody marvellous, Freddie. <laughs> Thank you. It's all I can say. I don't know what... what well, what we, I... listen, I, when I was, you know, getting ready to talk to you today, I was, you know, 
looking up things and reading your biog and things. And we met, I mean, I can't believe it, but we met in 93, I think it was. And so that's nearly 30 years ago. I mm, can't believe yeah. it. But 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 I'd been seeing your pictures for 30 years before that. <laughs> <laughs> and we met, I have to just tell everyone, we met, we were both... We were both judges, right, on Miss World. So we were that, of that year. Yeah, Do you remember? We were. And we oh, were flown. Yeah. We were flown out to. I came with Lee and my daughter Carly, and you came out with Sandy. And we we were in um, South Africa first. Just out, wasn't it? Just outside of Johannesburg. Yes, it was. And we did our judging, and um, my girl didn't win. I think I thought in, in that in uh, that village. So the the. the Sun City, and it was Sun, a whole. Sun, comp- it was Sun City. Yeah. Bopututswana. That was it. Boput, the, 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 one of those um, rather false nation states created by the, the white supremacists as a sop to um, black Af- African nationalism didn't last. Thing, but it was called Bopututswana. Oh, did and, it? Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, there was a, 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 a sort of resort called Sun City. That's where we were. It was quite that's, a posh hotel, where, wasn't it? Where, yes, a posh hotel. That's where the competition was. Yeah, and you and Sandy and Lee and I and Carly, we then flew off to Mauritius for a 10-day break in Mauritius. Yes, Do you we, remember? Got a free, we got a freebie there on the it house. It was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. But my favourite memory, I mean, Lee, bless him, still... I think goes green when we talk about it. You, you, you're a deep sea fisherman, right? I, I love loved deep sea fishing and scuba diving. So I was either on the surface or under it. <laughs> you invited Lee to go deep sea fishing, and and when you got beyond the reef, because it was calm all around the island, and when you got you, go, beyond... you through the reef, then you get the the, the Indian Ocean, and apparently and that, that can be wild. He went green. And spent the next four hours hanging on to a, a mast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and he said you were really sweet because you could see he was really ill and he was throwing up. And you said you want me to take you back, but he said he felt so bad if he spoilt your fishing trip. Oh, you see that 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 British tenacity. He wouldn't. You no, know, he, he said no, no, we we'll stay out here. And then That's put right. his head over the uh, head over the edge again. <laughs> <laughs> more more breakfast. Back to the ocean. So, so they, they, they're his memories of Mauritius. No, we had other ones, but... Um, I'm not certain what we caught. <laughs> we I caught tell anything. you what you caught, and Carly remembered this. Carly was about 15 at the time. Yeah, she had her 15th birthday out there. Um, you must have caught a tuna because she said the next day, and she'd never really enjoyed Japanese food, which she loves now, She'd Sandy, your wife, had got somebody to slice... Lots very thin, and, and you, we had tuna sashimi. Yep, I do remember that. Yeah. Do you remember? <laughs> well, sa- yes, my sa- Sandy's a, a great buff for Japanese cuisine, and I don't know where she got a, a, a sashimi creator from on the Mauritius, but she did. And yes, we had it. It was a well, if you remember that, the chef fresh said, caught, fresh caught the... from the ocean by my own fair hands. Oh, how amazing! <laughs> well, I'm glad you. Well, I think you did invite me to go, but I'd I'm I'm I'd have been hysterical out there because I'm not very good at sea. <laughs> You'd have had yeah. to throw me overboard. <laughs> uh, well, yes, I don't think it was all that. Wild. I've been out in wilder. Uh, wilder do you not? Do you not get seasick? No, I don't know why. I just. I like I love the sea. You see. 
Um, I, I never, I've never been I've touched water. I've never been airsick or seasick. And you don't um, get scared out there when the waves get big. Only once did I get a bit worried. I thought I thought I wouldn't. I wasn't going to make it back. That was uh, another trip, another time. I was out alone, um, and the uh, there was a cyclone. Uh, they are big, and it was. It, we thought it was way north of us, and it suddenly turned and swerved, oh. and began to march across the ocean. And it looked like to start with just a line of black on the horizon. And then the skipper said, I don't like the look of this. Can we head for home? I said, by all means, whatever you say, skipper. So he headed for home, did about 10 knots. And there's this vertical wall of water <laughs> about 30, 40 feet high, <gasps> advancing at 30 knots. And the question was whether we'd ever make the reef in time. He made it with about a second and a half to spare. Oh, my God. We went through the hole in the reef just as the mountain hit the reef. It was a boom like the artillery in the First World War going off behind us and the waves went about 150 feet high. Oh, my and, God. Um, we just got into the lagoon in time to find the entire uh, occupancy of the hotel lined up on the beach cheering. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Made it. Got it. You got around. But that was close because if, if that wave had caught us 100 yards further out, um, it would have the boat would have disappeared. It matched wood. Oh, my God. It was only God. a wooden boat with a... Small engine. We were doing ten knots, uh, and the the tidal wave was doing thirty. Oh Never mind. my good! So when the tidal wave hit the the reef, it yeah. broke it, did it? Oh yeah, the reef's solid coral, uh, and it, it's uh, just under the under the water. But there's a gap, you see, and the the, the thing was trying to find the gap because it was covered in spray. Oh, so, I see. So uh, this this wonderful old skipper, born and raised on the island, he was trying to estimate where the gap. It was only about 20 yards wide, and we shot through it, caught from a champagne bottle, and uh, emerged into the lagoon, and just as this thing hit the reef behind us. And you you still went out again after that? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but not, not in a cyclone. Now, am I right in thinking you, you started as a, a journalist, right? I started... Well, I did my national service, which we had to do in those days. That's right. Uh, way back in the RAF. Um, I had two passions. One was to fly, mm -hmm. and the other was to travel the world, see the world. So I got rid of the first one first by getting my wings in the Air Force. And then I came out of the Air Force and became a journalist, looking to be one day a foreign correspondent. They're the ones that do the traveling. Mm -hmm. So I did my apprenticeship first and then became a foreign correspondent. Did 12 years of that. Um, so does that mean you were, you were sent out to war zones? Uh, with the last, the last one, yes. I was uh, with the BBC. I changed from Reuters to the BBC. Uh -huh. They sent me to a place called Biafra. Now that's oh, a, yeah, I remember a that. A word from the dim and distant past. Nigeria had a civil war going on. The smaller party was uh, Biafra, which was seeking separate independence from Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And it was very bloody. Um, and a lot of children were dying. I remember. And I was sent out there to report on it, which I duly did, but my reports upset the Foreign Office. Uh, Why? They wanted the Nigerian side of things uh, oh. to be promoted, uh, passionately supported Nigeria, um, and uh, I was reporting, I think, quite accurately what was going on, which wasn't pretty at all. Kids dying of starvation. I was not just a few thousands of them. 
So I reported this, and um, I was accused of being biased. So I resigned and went back as a freelance. Oh, good for you. Well, but fortunately, it must... Steve, uh, the press, press, the media came out second time, and TV. Now, TV doesn't lie, so when they showed films of these poor children, and they were shown on our screens, it, there was a chaos, riots, yep. um, demonstrations. Um, I remember. All sorts of things going on. Yeah, it was terrible. It didn't make me the most popular man in the Foreign Office. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, unbelievable. Like but did you were you ever in a war situation where you had a close call, you know, with guns and oh, bombs? Yeah, yeah. And... yeah. No, the, 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 uh, wars in jungles are, how shall I put it, scary because you can't see. Um, it's a, you know, just walls and walls of green foliage. And for all you know, um, enemy troops are behind it um, and just open up with machine guns. So I've had that happen a few times. Sort of <laughs> hit, the, hit the deck fast. <laughs> I bet you bloody did. Did you wear an um, uh, um, armoured vest? No, they didn't have any. Oh, my <laughs> was, goodness. They didn't have any. They just issued me a green shirt. They said, we're not taking you with a cream shirt because you're too damn obvious. And um, presumably you didn't have any weapons? No, one journalist just have a notepad and pencil. Oh, um, my God. And uh, so you hope, you hope the guys around you know what they're doing. And so, sometimes it, it gets tight. Well, there have been journalists over the years who've been killed, haven't there? Oh, lots. Of, there's a lots huge, and lots and lots. huge column of, of names somewhere um, after all the Walker. Vietnam costs a lot of Walker response lives. Really? Um, and the various wars in Africa, Ditto, Congo, Katanga, uh, Nigeria, Biafra, and so mm. on. Um, so do you, when you started doing all these reports, is this had you written any had you written any novels or no, stories uh, up no, until no. that point? Uh, no, that's right. I was just a, as far as I was concerned, I was a journalist, a purely a journalist, nothing but a journalist. And I came back to England skint, no career. Demonized by in official quarters here. Um, I wasn't going to get a job in a hurry. And so I thought, foolishly, you might say, uh, well, I know what I'll do. I'll write a novel. Not a recipe for making any money quickly. If you want to rob a bank, that would be quicker. <laughs> so it was a long, long shot. But I dashed off this manuscript of 350 pages in 35 days, which is mad, and began to hawk it around the West End. Um, got three rejections. When I read nowadays about poor so-and-sos who've got 50 rejections, I think back and think, God, I was so spoiled, you know, vain, because I thought, three rejections, how dare they? <laughs> and the fourth that took it and decided to publish it. And then suddenly, for no particular reason, when it was published, it sort of exploded. And it was called The Day of the Jackal. Yeah. I think it more than exploded, my God. It must be one of the most successful novels ever, isn't it? It must be. Well, I, eventually it went north of 10 million, which was, I mean, they, they published 5,000 oh, wow. <laughs> launch print. But eventually... I was it really, really exciting when that happened? I mean, did you... Well, bewildering, actually. I mean, my, I, I, to this day, I'm bewildered because, you know, it, that kind of success normally follows years yeah. of struggle and try and try again and rejection slips and put it in the drawer and try another novel and so on. You may get your seventh or eighth or tenth finally printed. And here was this 
theme that, that exploded from day one. Which, so there was no reason, rhyme or reason. Was there like a very important reviewer who reviewed? I mean, what, what you know, when the book gets published, it gets oh. reviewed, right? So was there one thing that made people think, oh, I've got to read that novel? No, I don't think it was any one thing. Uh, when At the outset, you see, the media were immune to it because it was the day of the what? My Freddy? Ooh. <laughs> um, so there was no publicity at all. Um, oh, wow. And it began, the sales began to grow. Um, on really word of mouth, people just saying to another guy in, in the commuter train, I've just finished a book, you should have a look at it. So, 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 so. Recommend personal recommendations. And then the figures began to increase at the publisher's end as more and more reorders came in. Uh, and then they said, we just top 20,000. We printed five. We have a bestseller here. Then the foreign rights started. The French, the Americans, the Germans. Oh. And it spread across the world. The Japanese went mad for it. I don't know why. But then de Gaulle, you see, was an international figure mm -hmm. by then. And I don't think anyone had ever done a story about assassinating a head of state. It's pretty pretty hairy, hairy. It's pretty hairy stuff. <laughs> for people who don't know, that's was the basic plot line, wasn't it, of Day of the Jackal? It but was... it wasn't unprecedented because Kennedy had been assassinated. That's on, right. Uh, in 1963. I was writing in 1971, 70, 71. Mm -hmm. um, and so published 73. So 10 years earlier than Day of the Jackal, yes, a head of state, very, very important head of state, had been assassinated in Dallas, Texas. That's right. But not in France. But it was known that de Gaulle, A, was still alive... So what the hell's the point of it? Um, and, you know, yes, there were five or six attempts to assassinate Charles de Gaulle. Oh, were there? Mm. Wow. I just added the seventh, I suppose. <laughs> so, so, but, but yours wasn't a novel. You hadn't heard of a, a plot that was going to happen or anything. It was no, a novel, was, wasn't it? As far as I know, there was never uh, a foreign assassin, professional assassin. Yeah hired by the OAS, the terrorists who were trying to kill de Gaulle, um, they relied on their own people and failed every time. And I was in there for Reuters at the time, covering the story, uh, and it's, I didn't tell anybody. I just thought privately, they're not going to succeed because the French counterintelligence know who they are. They're all tagged. They're all, you know, they've got a, a dossier on every single one of them. And as fast as they put their heads above the parapet, they were nicked. Well, I said they might succeed if they got a complete stranger in that the French counterintelligence had no knowledge of. Didn't know who he was, where he came from, what he looked like, anything. Might work. So that was the theory. Um, and then I just pursued it, eventually. But thank God they didn't try it. <laughs> thank yeah, thank God. God. They might have worked. How long after the book came out did they start showing interest in making it into a film? Oh, quite quickly. Um, it was actually Fred Zinnemann, the brilliant mm -hmm. uh, uh, sort of American director, um, who did some of the great films like High Noon and The Man for All Seasons. Yeah, and he had come into London to look at another project, um, a project called Abelard and Eloise. And it, it, it um, ran into problems. They couldn't make it. It wasn't allowed. The option was cancelled. All sorts of things happened. Uh, and the, the um, 
head of Romulus Films, desperate because of his embarrassment, reached for a manuscript lying on his windowsill and thrust it at Fred Zinnemann and said, this has just come in, it might interest you. Zinnemann took it away on the Friday and came back on the Monday and said, that is my next film. He fell for it and made, I thought, a brilliant movie. And that was when he, he engaged um, Edward Fox, and I met Edward, and we became mates. Are you still mates? Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a, so did you, have, did you have any input on the script, or did they no. have you as a, you know... No, they, he didn't. I, I'm, I'm quite right, too, because I, I, first of all, I was deeply involved in no, novel three, which was uh, The Dogs of War. Oh, yeah. One about white mercenaries in Africa. Uh, I was involved in that. But also, I, I tried my hand at the script, and it was a disaster. Um, and so they got a much, much better scriptwriter who did the script. Um, the only input I've ever had was rather, rather amusing, because Fred Zinnemann called me into his office one day, and it was a question of who's he going to cast as the jackal. It was a much sought-after role. I um, bet. <laughs> big stars wanted it, you see. Um, and he put six pictures in front of me, all postcard size, all good-looking, blondish, English types, faces, there I And he said, which one for you is the jackal? And I looked at all six, and I eventually tapped the one at the bottom right-hand corner and said, that one. And he said, I'm so glad you picked him. That's Edward Fox. And I, I didn't know it was Edward Fox at the time. Um, well, he'd have been he, a young actor then, right? I mean, He just had a success as Lord Trimmingham. In the go-between, oh, that's um, but right. it, and, and he got a prize, he got an award for that. Yeah. But he, he hadn't become an internationally known face, and that was what Fred Zinnemann wanted. He did not want someone who everyone would say, "Look, there he is." He wanted someone who could vanish into the crowd, as the jackal would have done, that's right. disappear. And so he he was looking for a, an actor with good track record, but no international fame, and picked Edward. And so uh, then he went, when I started the filming the next year, 1973, asked me over to Paris. And we dined together with Edward. I met Edward that way. And we became mates and stayed in touch ever since. And what, did, you, did you go along when they were filming and things like that? Only one, I, one day. Uh, one, one day on the set in France and one day on the set in England. But, you know, it's a very wise process. Keep writer away from the film set. <laughs> <laughs> we're, you, we're used to saying, oh, I didn't mean that. No, 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 I didn't do that. No, it wasn't what I meant at all. But it uh, must directors. have been so exciting <laughs> for you. I mean, your first novel, which is, yeah. you know. Well, bewildering. So, yeah, bewildering. bewildering. Well, okay. I know that feel, feeling because what happened to me was bewildering. And it's like there's no rhyme or reason. Well, yours was because it was such a successful, beautifully written book. But for me, what happened to me was bewildering because I didn't expect it. It's like, I mean, I loved it. It was fantastic. But um, it's weird when you don't plan something and it happens. Maybe that's the best way, actually. Could be. Could be. <laughs> you know, if you'd have written it thinking this is going to be a big seller and it's going to make it, you know, and it and it hadn't happened. Whereas if you write it and think, I'm going to put this out and see what it does. And then it turns into this massive, massive yeah. monster hit. Yep. Well, that was it. I, I thought it might just make enough to, for me to get out of debt. 
put a few thousand by. Uh, I, I thought go back into journalism. I thought I had in mind. Oh, how interesting. But after the second novel, it became plain. I'd got a new career, whether I liked it or not. <laughs> I'd also got a, a, a fiancé. And then we married in 73. And mm-hmm. he said, why, why go to get your head shot off in African hellholes when you can sit here in a nice little manor house in Ireland and write novels? How long did you live in Ireland? Five years. Um, Where? The, um, Wick, the Wicklow Hills, County Wicklow. Oh, it's gorgeous. A little village called Enniskerry. Oh, yeah. Um, lovely old man, bought a lovely old manor house there. And uh, settled down there for five years. After five years, um, they got a little pear shape because my wife was carrying, uh, carrying I mean, in baby arms, our second son. Mm-hmm. And she developed what was called postnatal depression. Oh, dear. Which can afflict ladies just after birth. Absolutely. Um, she became susceptible to panic attacks, believing there was an IRA gunman behind every bush in the garden. Oh, wow. And there wasn't, but um, nevertheless, uh, she believed that. So uh, pleaded with me to get out and go back to England. So we did. We... And this was this during when the IRA troubles were happening over there oh, with, very the, much with so, the British. Yes, but, so yeah, she was yeah, the, probably the, got scared. They, they'd been going on in the north for some time. We weren't in the north, we were in the south. But mm. then what happened was that the IRA renegade groups began to kidnap prominent citizens in the south uh, and hold them to ransom. And um, someone pointed out to me, said, you're not the richest man in Ireland, you're not the most famous man in Ireland, but you're the most famous rich Brit in Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> so we are very susceptible to it. And um, Well, they, so you know, Mountbatten Mount got killed, didn't he? He got killed, yep. Yeah. He was uh, murdered with a bomb. Uh, others, there was a man called Tita Herrimer, who was a Dutch businessman. He was kidnapped, held to ransom for, I think, half a million. Women. Oh, okay. So, so um, actually, she was right in being a bit nervous about it. Indeed. Whether it would ever happen to me, I don't know. But there we well, are. Well, I'm glad you came back. There <laughs> <laughs> we came back. And also, Maggie, that, see, I left partly because uh, Dennis Healy, you may remember, long ago. I do. Had raised income tax to 83%. I do, yeah. Which was crippling. I mean, why work for 83%? I know. Nick, take it off you. Um, but Maggie came to power and lowered it to 60%. That's right. Which I felt I could live with. Mm. So... There was that and uh, the wife's uh, uh, fear of mm. IRA, something happening, either to her or me. Uh, put the two together, powerful reasons, to um, re- re- relocate to, uh, to England, which we did. Been here ever since. It's a beautiful country, Ireland, isn't it? I mean, I've it's, never lived yeah. there. We've visited. It's so gorgeous. Did yeah, you love lovely. being there? I did. I did. I liked the Irish enormously. I yeah. liked, loved the countryside. Um, you know, in sort of County Wicklow, the Wicklow Hills are a very gentle landscape of hills and valleys. That's right. And um, so, yes, we were very content there. So you came back and you settled in the British countryside, right? Yep. Had you Had you written the Odessa file by this time? Uh, yes, I had. I'd done all three. Okay. Uh, I think I think by the time I left, I'd, I'd done four, one, two, three in England. Uh, then I then I. Oh, then over the, the sea to Ireland. And I only did, I think, one 
in Ireland. I've forgotten which one it was now. Oh, I did the sh I did the Shepherd in Ireland. Oh, okay. Which was um, a short story, really, um, about a pilot. And I was preparing novel four um, when we came home. So I only really, only really one was completely written and published in Ireland. Then I came home and uh, I think we were 11, 11 after that. I think I've done 15 in all. Wow. So what's your processes? You know, do you, do you wait till you suddenly have an idea or, or do you get up every morning and think from 9 till 12? I mean, how, how do... No, because writers all do different things, yeah. don't they? How, what's your process? Well, writers are weird so-and-so's anyway. Because we, <laughs> we, we are. We live... 90% of our time inside our own heads. Yeah. Very um, solitary profession, Solitary, isn't it? yes. We love solitude. We love peace and quiet. Um, I love silence and being alone, which is weird. You know, most people are running around looking for company. Yeah. And here am I looking around <laughs> looking for solid, solitude. <laughs> let me out. Let me out. Yeah. <laughs> Leave me alone. Leave me out. Go away. Leave me alone. So then while, while thinking, one eventually comes off my idea. Um, would this work? Is my first thing. Would it work? Um, and if you look at the stuff I've written, it's all really probably can be described in two very short half sentences. Would this possibly happen? Mm -hmm. Or what would happen if dot dot dot? So what would happen if terrorists hijacked a tanker in uh, the North Sea? Uh, so that that basically is the, t the tanker story. His name escapes me, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> so and then, then that leads off you on a journey then of characters. Then question, well, first the feasibility test: Would it work as a story? Does yeah. it work as a story? If the answer to all that is yes, 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 then you begin proper real work. I need characters, I need events, I need technology. Uh, I've got to do some research because reading public can have very pernickety about research, uh, because people know so much. If yeah. they don't, they can always tap in the uh, query to Google or whoever and have it answered for them. So if you sort of say, you know, the Eiffel Tower dominates Berlin, screams, no, 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 it's in Paris. You, see, you can't fool them anymore. So get it, you've got to get it right. Do you think it was easier to write kind of in your genre, which is like the espionage thriller, right? Was it easier before there was the internet, do you think? Because now everyone can look up anything. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I've been always sceptical of the internet because I've sort of done a lot of research in various places where I, where I need, I think I need, uh, to describe some rather unpleasant place. I can tap in, what I get is tourist brochure stuff. Yeah. It doesn't convince me. Uh, so eventually I've just got to go and have a look for myself. So I've been in some weird places uh, following <laughs> this policy. Um, what is so-and-so really like? Well, my last one was Hellhole or Mogadishu, capital of Somalia, which is oh, yeah. a war zone and um, dominated by um, Al-Shabaab. Terrorist groups. Um, I went in there with the only time I've ever taken a bodyguard. I went in with a bodyguard. I needed to see it, to describe yeah. it properly, to see it. Went in there with a bodyguard, and we spent three days um, outside the wall ring where the, where the whiteies live. Um, the, trouble, <laughs> the trouble was, you, t 
two very white faces going through this entirely black city. Was, was, were you scared? Um, uh, no, not I don't think so, no. No, I mean, my, my bodyguard had something under his left armpit, which I didn't inquire too, too, too much <laughs> of what he got. I knew what it was. He never had to draw it. Um, but on one occasion, we were sitting in our little strange hotel called, quite ironically, the Peace Hotel, uh, chewing on our camel broth. Um, and uh, I noticed some red, red fires going past the window. So I said, oh, look, someone's celebrating fireworks. And he just looked at me pitying and he said, tracers. <laughs> there was a machine gun. Someone what, firing. I don't know what a tracer is. What's that? Illumin illuminated machine gun bullets. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, God. Someone had seen us and oh, I'll have those Ooh. two old honkies to start Oh, with. my God. <laughs> Unfortunately, he didn't get us. Well, you're either very brave or a bit mad. <laughs> uh, foolhardy, I would, agree, I would agree to foolhardy sometimes. But that, because you go to these places, that does bring a realism into your novels, doesn't it? Well, I can say with, heart, with hand on heart, yes, I, I, have, I have described them exactly as they were. Um, mm. uh, I went to Bogota, Colombia, for a cane story called The Cobra. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was rife with cocaine warlords, you know, like and I went down to, um, to was, oh, Guinea-Bissau, that's a hellhole in West Africa, where they also do cocaine. It's a cocaine stopover. I went to examine that, how they smuggled the cocaine from Colombia across the Atlantic and then into West Africa and then up north over the Sahara and into southern Egypt, yeah. uh, southern uh, Europe, uh, where the Andrangheta, sort of mafia yeah. of southern Italy, take over and spread it upwards through Europe uh, to most of our countries. Lee and I, we, we got very hooked on talking books because we do long drives. Mm -hmm. And we, we got that book. It, it, it was so, I mean, your detail is unbelievable about, you know, where they when they bring the drugs over. And so, and I remember Lee saying, God, I bet Freddie really went out there and researched <laughs> this because it's just amazing. Are you writing anything at the moment? No, dear. I've, I've, I said nobody would believe me if it's true. I said two and a half years ago. I've just turned 80 and I am retiring. Good for you. Do you um, think, I mean, do you think well, that... I don't, see, I don't see why writers shouldn't retire. They're all supposed to go on. <laughs> But what happens if you wake up, like, in three days with this amazing idea? What would you do? Probably have a stiff one. Lie down till the feeling wears off. So, therefore, with how have you coped through this nightmare of the last year and a half with COVID? Well, you know, it sounds awful to say it, but it hasn't. Lockdown hasn't worried me too much because, firstly, my life is naturally solitary. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and sadly, sadly, my wife hasn't been too well, not with no. COVID. Um, so we've had a, a very muted social life. Very, uh, rarely. Um, for a long time, we wouldn't, like, couldn't go to a restaurant, couldn't go to a bar, a cafe, um, any of our favorite haunts. Um, so we, we got sort of Vaccinated very quickly and very, and very thoroughly. We are now double vaxxed. As soon as the, as soon as the vax appeared, um, which I think is a great British triumph, 
that we were the first with the first with the best. Well, Astra, yeah. AstraZeneca is something. And then to give credit where it's due, they, they they marketed it at cost, not making a massive sort of profit out of it. Mm-hmm. Hats off to that. The, the Americans marketed it with a big big markup. But ours was cheap, cheap enough, so we got this huge rollout. I think we got to 60% of the British nation vaccinated when Europe was about 7 or 8%. They are now, they've now caught up. Yeah. Um, the only thing I think, I mean, listen, what do I know? But the only thing I think, as you say, the vaccination program, we've done incredibly well. The only thing I, I think they did wrong right at the beginning, I think they should have stopped you know, close the borders, flights coming in yeah, They were too late, yeah, too late, uh, too because slow. Because they, they, they knew it was coming, but yep. they didn't do it yep. quick enough, did they? They didn't do it quick enough, and they, uh, they didn't do it particularly to some very, very high-risk sources like China. They didn't stop the Chinese coming in. I know. They, they were, there were many of them super carriers. Yeah. So it spread quicker than it needed done. Yeah. Um, do you think if they, well, nobody will ever know, but do you think if they had a, Close the borders much earlier. It would we'd have had, you know, less. Awful. Well, it's it's wise after the event. You know, these but on the other hand, there were some shrewd voices at the time saying do it. They were ignored, um, and then when it was out of control, which need never have been, uh, suddenly this uh, whole the whole country crippled by massive lockdown. I know, uh, I know. And then extending it when it was no longer necessary when you've got people who are vaxxed. God's sake, let them out. You know? Yeah, we're, I know. Cause we're still prisoners, even though we're double vaxxed and therefore supposedly 90% immune. Yeah. We're still prisoners. That's right. Don't but, I mean, they, was... had to, they had to start un- unlocking it because of people's businesses. I mean... Yes, but you know, our, our recovery is going to be a long, long time. Do you think... Oh, well, the government has spent trillions. We're not talking about even millions or billions anymore. We're talking nearly a thousand billion. Oh, my God. That's a trillion. That's going to take an awful... We didn't have it, but we had to borrow it. So that's going to take an awful lot of payback. You know, and there's still... I mean, a bojo up there is still spending. He wants to tunnel under the Irish Sea to Ireland or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Really, really, we could do without that. We don't really need it, do we? Well, it's not, I don't understand why they're spending so much on the train up to Manchester well, H- or something. Just to H- cut 20 minutes, you know, yeah. just to cut 20 minutes off a journey. It doesn't make exactly. sense. Well, you know, everyone's clamouring about it. But see, HS2 is about vanity and reputations. Um, too many of these fat old bureaucrats have got their reputations at stake now. But it's it's quite clear it was a mistake. Um um, that they will not rectify, even though it's been costed 106 billion. So, honestly, you know, you could do, you could improve the existing one, uh, upgrade the London Birmingham yep. for a fraction of that, and spend the rest on helping people get back to work, back to their jobs, yeah. reopen the shop, reopen the bar, reopen the cafe, whatever. I think um, we should have Freddie Forsyth for prime minister. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, you make more sense than a lot of them. <laughs> well, I don't want to become another Dominic Cummings. Thank you very much. Oh, no. Oh, no. But you are, you are quite outspoken in your, your views, aren't you? I mean, you've, you've got your column. Do you still do your yeah, column? I do, I do. Uh, but 
And it's you outspo- are quite... outspoken, yes. I, I, but mainly in a mocking sense. I, yeah. I take the Mickey out of uh, the pretentious and the uh, the, the very pleased with themselves, and that's a lot of politicians. Therefore, uh, the incompetence of civil servants has a lot of that about. Uh, the extraordinary profligacy in money terms of the quangocracy. You've got quangos now for everything. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, who, who, who appoints, we know who pays for them, we do. Who yeah. appoints all these so-and-sos? And, you know, mm. They have no expertise. They don't know what the hell they're doing most of the time. Give them a project and they'll probably make a dog's breakfast of it. But nevertheless, there they are with their massive salaries, their massive... Uh, uh, pensions, their, pot, their pension pots, and so on, uh, living off public expense. Now, if I were the, uh, in Downing Street, yes, I would take an, a claymore and go through that lot, <laughs> leaving blood all over the place. I know I wanted to ask you, changing the subject, why did you go to, I read in your bio that you went to school in England, but you went to university in Spain. In Spain? What, how did yes. that, why and how? Well, it wasn't really a university in Spain. I came out of school too early for national service, and I'd got time to kill. Okay. And my dad, very practical, said, I'm not having you mooning around the house doing nothing in particular for six months. We'll have to find something for you to do. Think of something. Um, I then noticed that there was an, uh, so a sub-paragraph in the scholarship that I'd won to school which said in the last term, or the last year at school, um, anyone holding the scholarship can apply to the Board of Governors for a, a grant to go and study abroad. So I thought, why not? I, oh, oh. Uh, I discovered that there was a, a course offered by Granada University, Southern Spain, uh, to come to Spain at their expense and study Spanish. So I, I took him up and uh, got, I was granted, yes, yes, you're, you're okay. Uh, went down to Spain and for three months I lived there studying Spanish. Um, so I already fluent in French and German. I added Spanish, the third man, the third one, uh, to my languages. Um, but it also enabled me to frequent the bullring at Malaga. Oh. So uh, I was I was then I just read a book called Death in the Afternoon by Hemingway, yeah. Hemingway. and was uh, was potty about bullfighting. So I used to go and frequent the bull ring. And, uh, so eventually, uh, the, the, the Spanish don in charge of the course saw me in the street and said, Excuse me, are you the British student who never shows up? I said, That's me, sir. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Well, you speak very fluent Spanish. How is that? I said, Well, I'm living with a friend, with a Spanish family. And have been for three months. Uh, all the rest of the students are in a hostel that were speaking English to each other. I was speaking Spanish. Ah. So he said, "Well, you're very fluent in Spanish. Um, I, I think I think you should should come and do the exam." So, so you learnt to speak fluent Spanish in three months. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, if you if you live with a family, and they speak not a word of English. You either don't say anything at all, or you learn. You have to. Oh, I, um, but so I do think, and you said you, you can speak fluent French and German. Did you learn those at school? No, well, partly at school, but partly also my father, again, very foresighted man, my dad. Yeah. He was only a shopkeeper from Kent, but uh, he had great ideas, and one of them was um, that in the future, this is after the Second World War, we are going to have to become very much part of Europe. And to do that, language is going to be very useful. So um, he had contacts in France through the Rotary Club, 
And uh, he said, would you, would you have my, my son over for the summer holidays? Now, as they ran, a, my parents ran a shop. Their summers were very busy. And so what to do with a boy mm-hmm. for eight wearisome weeks in the middle of that summer holiday? So I went over to France. First of all, for four consecutive years, um, came back able to pass for French among the French. And then Dad said, well, we can do that with the French. Why can't we do it with the Germans? So he found me a German family. And I spent three consecutive years holidaying with them until I could pass for German among Germans. That Both is of which brilliant. came very useful later. Well, as a, as a foreign correspondent, you see. Yeah. Um, yes. But you, you, must have, you must have had a great ear because not everyone can learn. I mean, learn that. Well, when you're young, as children learn like blotting paper, really. Well, that's true. They really do. They learn like body paper. So I got French to the point where I could pass the French among the French, and then ditto German. Um, and then they sent me to East Germany, which became very, very uh, interesting because I could pass from German among yeah. Germans in East Germany and just listen to what they had to say and then wow. slip back to the war and uh, report to uh, Britain. It's very, um, what's the word, it's, uh, convenient to slip into a country and, and, and into the population and understand them and speak with them and listen to them. And particularly, for example, when I was in, inside East Germany, um, mingling with East Germans and listening to what they had to say about the communist regime, which is probably the harshest regime in Eastern Europe, a Soviet mm-hmm. dependency, of course. Yeah. Um, but the, what the people actually said in privacy was not what the communist authorities were telling us. <laughs> they hated That's them. That's amazing. They hated them. That's amazing. You got the CBE in 1997. I've got down here. Yeah. Did you get uh, it from the? Yeah. Did you get it from the Queen? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was she lovely? One of the proudest moments of my life. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, yeah, drop, very well drop, deserved. Drop on one knee, and uh, she put this ring, this uh, ribbon around my neck. Ah, uh, that was that. Yeah, that's lovely. Well, congratulations! But you've not quite, once, not quite you've, sure what for. <laughs> well, I think we know what for. But you've <laughs> you've you've had so many awards for your books and your writing. I mean, it's endless. When I look at the list of what you've done and what you've received, it's mind-boggling. And I mean, it says somewhere I read that you've sold over like seventy million books or something. <laughs> 70 to 80, I mean, I think the publishers have lost count. Unbelievable. Does it make you sometimes wake up and think, my good, I mean, 70 million, that's a lot of, that's a lot of books, Freddie. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah, but I mean, the others have done 100 million. I think, I think uh, that, that um, bizarre book, seven, 50 Shades of Grey, has done about 100 million. Has it? Yeah, and it's all about kinky sex. Isn't well, it? I know, yeah, but that's. <laughs> At 83, I'm a bit old for that. <laughs> Memory lane, yeah. <laughs> but I think a lot of people rushed out and bought that because of what they read it was about. And then most people, well, a lot of people I knew, did, you know, got through about three or four pages. And But anyway, that is another story. Mm-hmm. Have have you learnt any new things during lockdown because you couldn't go out? I mean, I I, I got into my knitting and my sewing. <laughs> mm, no, I, I don't think I did. No, I, I mean, 
I think re I thought retirement might be peaceful, not a bit of it. Um, it it's not the phone, it's the email, it's not the email, it's the, uh, the letters arriving through the letterbox. Yep. Um, it's this, that, and the other, and it's this request and that request, and when I read this and when I review that, and oh, it's, uh, it never stops. Never stops. So I'm, I'm, people say to me, you know, how do you fill your day? I reach something blunt. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute joy. It's been lovely to see you because we haven't seen you for ages. It's been lovely to talk to you. And thank you for coming on my podcast. Give my best to Lee, please. Yeah, when he, you get sends, home. he sends you lots of love. And hopefully, we can. Um, I was talking to lovely Sandy, your wife. We're going to try and organize meeting up at some point when we're yeah. all allowed to. Anyway, stay safe. And thank you for joining me on Tea with Twiggy. It's been a pleasure, my dear. Lots and lots of love. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Oh, that was so lovely catching up with Freddie. He's quite an extraordinary man. And if you haven't read his books, you should, because they are brilliant. Espionage thrillers. And he is amazing. Day of the Jackal just had its 50 year anniversary I can't believe it but anyway I hope you enjoyed meeting him it was lovely for me to see him again have a lovely week and see you next time bye if this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy please do remember to tell your friends you can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy, or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. just heard a stripped media production. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.